Hey, did you know this podcast has a Patreon? At patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and get early access to episodes and join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries. Get out there and do it. Thanks. Sunday scaries. Iced like even more today, and so it's just been you can't even go outside or do anything because even just like walking outside is treacherous at the moment. I know, I love it, and also that the Dallas Zoo is like going through the hardest struggle of its life this like last two weeks. People keep stealing animals. I don't know what's going on. It's like a thing. I think now. it's the same thing. I think it's just like one guy. Like one it's... guy just keeps fucking with the zoo. Yeah, the zoo bandit. He's got to be, he's doing something with them. I don't know how he's getting them out of there. But they found those monkeys, like, in, in a, like, a random building. Yeah, it was, like, an, un- it was yeah. like, like an abandoned apartment or something. Um, it's funny because I get all of my emails from the Dallas Morning News still, so I'm, like, up to date on y'all's news. Um, yeah. I, like, have no idea what's happening in my local city. Pardon. I do love, actually, it's kind of crazy. Dallas has been in national news for, uh, like, two or three stories. One of them was the Dallas Zoo. Um, they covered the Dallas Zoo in the New York Times, which I thought was super interesting. And then also that Luka Doncic just put up another 50-point game. Yeah, that was ridiculous. He did like did you... two or three 50-point games back-to-back. He's a fucking monster. The dude's yeah, like they... 23 or something, too. It's so frustrating. He's... To single-handedly score half of your entire team's points for a whole game and to make it look so effortless is insane. Yeah. You just like fucking with me today. I I want to go on record. I don't think it's like an amazing movie. I just feel like I like I walked out of it like, did I watch the same movie as everyone else? It's yeah. I think it's because I I wasn't giving it the first time. I, so we're talking about Elvis. I, I was changing my my Zoom background, and Daniel's uh having an issue with it because he loves I, this I, movie I, so I like, much. No, I do uh, not. I definitely know. <laughs> I won't die on that hill. I I think too. It's funny because I do like to shit start a little bit like i yeah i know you were back on conventional <laughs> taste and so i always find myself like in the devil's advocacy spot but then i'm like advocating something even i don't truly truly like believe in i just am like passionate about poking people yeah i am yeah. uh the son of a lawyer so it kind of comes to me naturally there you go yeah just, you're an, an innate contrarian uh, it is it is one of my greatest character flaws is i am so contrarian i refuse to engage with popular things until well after their popularity yeah uh well hey welcome to the we didn't do this last time but we didn't have a name for it yet but we're gonna call these the dead air sessions so welcome to the dead air sessions these are our our weekly uh thursday morning commute more relaxed conversations about film news and other things topics that we're interested in that might be not related to the main movie we're talking about during a particular week uh so i'm travis and i'm talking to daniel out there on the west coast i guess that's our well, intro i don't know i didn't write a good intro did you write one yeah no i did not i i haven't written an intro for this uh you know honestly just picking a topic was hard enough that i was yeah. like i'll deal with this because i really didn't want to talk about what we're talking about today it's because funny. i am above all a contrarian. <laughs> it is the contrarian to me that says i don't want to do this but i have to but I, you know, it's. A, I think I just. I'm too personally wounded by the whole thing. So we'll we'll get to it. It has uh, a yeah. I think that's gonna be like. I have a. I have a. I don't know. I I I'm in a new place now as far as I heal feel about the entire institution at large. 
because I have I have very mixed feelings about it. But I God for obvious reasons. But we'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah. So just bear with us, audience, because this is just we're gonna come up with a fun and cool intro. Um, shortly after I have I take the chance to even think about it. Yeah. Um, before we get to that main one, though, I had a couple other things that were like popping up as far as like headlines go that I was kind of interested in um, yeah. that weren't included on your uh, your main thing here so far. Um, so first of all, obviously, yeah, we have like that. Uh, yeah. Oh, actually, you got it in there. Um, yeah, we just recorded our episode in Infinity Pool, which uh, when you're listening to this will be out. It'll be out later tonight. <laughs> it's a little late because there's some creative editing stuff that I learned how to do for this uh but we got it down <laughs> so r- remote recordings should be streamlined from here on out um and i'm looking forward to that I w- for like for a little background on this podcast people listening i so you always ought to know the reason my audio has been like kind of junky is because mary kate and i just moved to la we have a one bed one bath and we set up my desktop in the living room so I cannot really record because she's the one with like an actual job right now. And so it would be kind of like rude for me to record an entire podcast episode on my very nice, very clean desktop in our living room while she is like actually busy paying our rent. So <laughs> the concession that I made was a slightly smaller mobile setup with my laptop in our bedroom. The problem is my bedroom is very cold. There's like no heating unit that gets to it. So every time I'm in the bedroom recording a podcast, I'm actually like tucked under a blanket with a microphone. I'll even show you. I'll show you, Travis, because this is just like me yeah. extra cozy. And then s- someone decided to join me today. Peter Rotwait. Yeah. Christopher Robin. Christopher says, Robin. Hello. But he was here when I got here and I felt bad for kicking him out. So he gets to sleep on my legs. Hello, podcast. <laughs> it's not a terrible setup i feel like the blankets might actually be soaking up some of the uh uh feedback in there so that, that probably is better than nothing yeah it's definitely and too like so we've basically been workshopping how to record at my house for yeah. the last couple sessions and like the eye for eye interview i did that on my on a laptop in my own like living room mary kate was gone um and so this is so far the best version but it makes me feel really lazy because i'm like in a bed, tu- in a bed, tucked under a blanket, talking about <laughs> movies. I'm like, I won't if say... I don't get paid to do this, I'll feel the laziest. Exactly. Ever. I'm not gonna lie and say that I did less work for this most recent editing, but it's uh, now that it, it was mainly the, the problem of like, like I go through and I cut in between individual like sections of a recording, and the problem is, is like I don't want to do that before I figure out a solution to the entire audio file at large to make it sound good. Because it's it's not productive to go in and edit each individual like section of the audio, so I spent the majority of the time figuring out the best way to normally fix the entire audio file and its quality, which has been done now. And now I have I know the process for it, which means I only had to do that one time. But well, and Mary Kate now will be going into the office at least two or three times a week. So if we yeah, record, Mary Kate, get out of my recording lucky. studio. <laughs> I was planning on her being gone today. Uh, she left earlier today, but then came back. Yeah, it was technical errors. Um, so I was kind of bummed. I was like really excited because I had a, a camera and mic set up I wanted to try out for this session that I didn't get to. Yeah. But it's, 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 a, uh, it's a work in progress. I'm excited about it. I think it'll be... Uh, I, like, I like problems like this, solving interesting creative problems that I didn't know I would have to solve beforehand. 
Right. So, so, so the audio has been wacky. We yeah. did talk about Infinity Pool, um, which is I was, been out for a couple days now. I was explaining to Kyra the entire, like, how long it took us into that recording to figure out that we watched two different versions of the movie. I did the same thing. I was like, <laughs> man, Kate, Travis was laughing because I realized I watched the NC-17 version. Which is a, a, that's a pretty, man, that's an intense experience to go through. I, and I didn't realize, like, I thought you were being hyperbolic when you were talking about some of the scenes that you saw. And I was like, no, you're describing literal things that happened in the movie that I didn't see. Uh, and that's, it took us almost till the end of the recording to figure out that we watched two different versions, which I think, I think you should have been more aware of. Cause I feel like they should have told you something about that when you went to that test screening of them being like, Hey, by the they, way, I went into this like as clean. I, I really truly went into this as clean. I literally didn't even know the building. I, did, I had no right. idea where I was going. I went to another screening today, which I thought would be in the same place. I wasn't even close. I was in a different screening room and it was like <laughs> three people and me. And I just showed up at the last minute and got in right before the movie started. So I was like, this is the weirdest screening experience I've ever had. Like this in Infinity Pool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how more people receive that movie. Uh, because it seems like it's, it's gaining a lot of momentum as far as uh, exciting people goes. Uh, there's some other movie podcasts that have covered it that have some funny opinions on it as well. Um, but this other topic, something I'm interested in. So... As of this week, uh, James Gunn being the new CEO and controller, I guess, of the all of the DC Universe properties, they released their slate for the it's, next uh, five or six years. It's James Gunn and Peter Safran together mm-hmm. working as co-heads of the DC Studios, is what they're calling it. Okay. Which includes everything that's not the DCU, but also the DCU. They're the Kevin Feige of DC. I was interested to see what this whole mix-up was going to be because I don't know how you feel about James Gunn. I'm pretty, like, I don't know. I feel like it's becoming less popular to, to be a fan of his, but I'm, I'm a fan of his work. Um, I don't know. And I kind of like his sardonic, contrarian internet presence as well on Twitter. Just kind of, like, he shoots down every fan theory and every, like, annoying universe sort of uh, postulation that people have on there. I love his Twitter account because they'll, like tweet at him like oh james gunn like are you ever gonna make like a like a nightwing movie or something and he'll be like no <laughs> <laughs> just flat out just like i'm not interested or, you know he's messing with people he'll put like yeah. a face emoji i also uh i have like i don't know i like james gunn i i've enjoyed his work so far i wasn't really clued into him until you know the Guardians of the Galaxy area, so era. So I feel like a bandwagoner. Like I missed no, Slither. I missed Super. Um, okay, well I did watch Slither. And Juliet. Yeah. Like I missed yeah. all his early years when he was just like really out there. Yeah. But I have to say the story of him becoming, like the the way that he got into DC is just so impressive and fascinating in so many ways. And, like, what a way to kind of, like, fail upwards. Yeah, I have a vague conception of this, but I don't know if it's just, like, my, like, assuming what happened based on the whole... Because it was, like, him jumping back and forth between Marvel and DC, right, after, in, like, Guardians 2 land. I think he's, like, currently the only director that's been able to do both a Marvel movie, like, a couple Marvel movies and uh, and make a DC movie, which he he did uh, the, The Suicide Squad. Right. And he did the Peacemaker series in DC, uh, and then for Marvel, obviously, he did the Guardians of the Galaxy movies uh, and the Guardians of the Galaxy special, which, yeah, I love all of those. Even if it is sort of the the dad rock of superhero movies, which hits, like, as far as, like, 
quadrants go it's the most you know sort of like it's classic rock and and bright colors there's nothing i don't know yeah more more simple and appealing than that but it's kind of like he does it in the most self-aware way or the most obvious way which you gotta well, kind of i i love the story of him like of how he got to dc in the first place is like basically he tweeted something when he was a young a young up-and-coming director he was kind of a shocky like made the like really messed up movies director um and he kind of was like used to tweeting like grotesque things on online he just didn't think there'd be consequences um and so i don't know what instigated this moment but somebody kind of like discovered one of his old tweets which is never a sentence you want to hear right like you're a famous person (laughs) and you hear the word we found one of your old tweets you instantly want to like cower um, which I, I I won't I don't remember exactly what it was he said I think it was like an abortion joke something really truly like yeah and offensive it, yeah and, and they tried to cancel him so the internet uh, and I I I won't I don't know exactly who tried to cancel him. there was just this long push by um, internet people who wanted to see James Gunn lose his job at Disney slash Marvel because of what he said and he did they spent a while debating it and ultimately cut. Uh, James Gunn's contract to finish his Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy kind of idea that he had, as well as some other things he had in the works with them. Um, and when that happened, he did issue a, an apology. He went and made a big public apology, kind of said, you know, like, yo, I was really young when I did this. I didn't know that, that there would be consequences. You know, I have to pay the price for my actions, and, and I, you know, am fine with the decisions made. And then, like, a week later, DC turned around and announced that they had hired him to do a bunch of movies. So you could tell, like, (laughs) DC was just like, let's steal one of Marvel's, like, favorite directors. We're desperate. Please give us Right. Yeah. Well, then it gets better because after that, DC, you know, he gets, it's announced that he's going to make uh, the Suicide Squad movie. He has, like, an idea for a Superman movie. There's all these, like, rumors about what he's going to make. Because it's, like, a three- or four-picture deal. Yeah. And then it flips right back around, and Disney says they renewed their contract with him for him to finish Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and then the Christmas special, and, like, one or two other things he had in the works with them. So James Gunn does get to have his cake and eat it, too. Uh, yeah. Which is only the beginning. <laughs> Because, you know, he, he makes The Suicide Squad, but it goes straight to HBO Max because of the pandemic. He's one of the few directors that advocates, he's like, we get it, you know, everyone's locked inside their homes, this is a dangerous time to go to the theaters, like, it's okay, like, it's fine, we'll just, we'll live. Uh, a couple, like, maybe a year or two after that, DC is struggling to get off the ground. Matt Reeves is the Batman, which has no continuity whatsoever, is doing really well. And it's just got all the studio heads just in a tizzy. Jeff Johns, one of the famous um, super producers behind all these DC ideas, um, finally steps down. You know, the the Zack Snyder Justice League push, the heads at DC are not looking good. Which now, in retrospect, definitely seems like the beginning of the end. Like, now that we know kind of, like, what the trajectory of the last two years has been, that entire era of scrambling makes a lot more sense and seems like much more of a harbinger of what would eventually come here. Well, and there's just so much, re- like, so little return on investment for a lot of the movies that they release. Yeah. I think they unfortunately had the the worst side effect. I mean, they released Wonder Woman 1984 and The Suicide Squad within a four-month stretch straight to HBO Max, um, limited theatrical run because of COVID, um, and even that couldn't mitigate audience. Like, the movies themselves would have done probably all right had they got, like, a strong opening weekend in theaters. 
um, at least been able to recoup enough money. But uh, audiences just didn't have the stomachs for it at home. They just found themselves, if they were able to get up and make their own popcorn, they'd probably skip this part of the movie or otherwise. And this is just, I'm repeating what is already been stated as far as factual information on viewership for these movies um, and overall like critical reception. Not to say that the Suicide Squad is like uh, ranked similarly with 1984, Wonder Woman 1984, but just that it, they both suffer from the same problems. So DC's like, they're in the corner of the ring and they're struggling. And over the summer, uh, they're looking for a new, a new head and there's a few contenders that come up until eventually they announce that James Gunn and Peter Safran are the co-heads of DC Studios. And they kind of said, we're going full, we're going to wipe the slate clean and do a new continuity. So you hear stories about Gal Gadot no longer coming back as Wonder Woman, or Jason Momoa, Henry Cavill. not sure if he'll return. Yeah. As, yeah, and Henry Cavill famously getting axed for Superman. Which was which the biggest, left, like... He, like, left The Witcher in order to spare, like, apparently to, like, free up his schedule to do more Superman content, um, and then did not get hired as Superman, so he no longer has The Witcher or Superman, and is now left out in the cold. Which is, like, it... Uh, I don't know. I... At the same time, I loved like Henry Cavill being Superman, but like on the other hand, it's sort of I don't know. The, the it, it was the same thing with happened with like The Rock, right? Where it's like he was posturing so much to be this new sort of like head of that of that entire franchise or whatever. But it, and I, I wonder if like if there isn't a, a need for that or why that was the the power structure there. Um, I mean, it's also it, worth noting that he had like the success, you know, during the era when DC is scrambling and stuff, and during COVID. Um, the release of the Suicide Squad and then followed by the spinoff Peacemaker, I think also, you know, the culture around James Gunn's productions and his his work was also kind of like coalescing as well. Because Peacemaker was by far, you know, that combined with the Suicide Squad, Peacemaker was like the funnest DC property that people were watching at that time. And I think it made the biggest cultural impact, you know, especially in the context of movies like Wonder Woman 1984 and us kind of in between aquaman movies for several years yeah i think um you know a lot of people were talking about james gunn specifically um because he had the highest hits as far as movie goes and they're not counting what Zack snyder's the justice league because that was just yeah. a bizarre like it was the one time in the history of the planet that the internet actually got what it wanted in a weird yeah. way that i've watched i've watched all four and a half hours there's a lot of stuff there a lot of stuff there um so like great I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy, but I think that all eyes were on James Gunn because they didn't really yeah. take Zack Snyder. Originally, this was kind of like the the underlying theme too. Is a lot of what Zack Snyder did with uh, you know um, the his Superman movies, um, both you know Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, was he was stealthing in his own kind of like you know cinematic universe. But the yeah. characters and the spinoffs that were made from that. So Zack Snyder goes and makes Justice League, and or Batman versus Superman, and then we get Wonder Woman, and then we get you know Aquaman. We start to get all these narratives, but the movies themselves don't really stick, and so it's hard to mm -hmm. keep that cinematic universe that Zack Snyder created initially together. Um, and James Gunn is one of the only ones to try and kind of work with all these disparate parts. You know, he's pulling in. Uh, like in Peacemaker, he's pulling in his relationships with John Cena. There's a cameo by Aquaman. There, he's 
bringing in, you know, uh, Joel Kinnaman's character from the other Suicide Squad movie. We're talking about <laughs> one of the only characters to survive every iteration of the DCU is Harley Quinn. He yeah. gives her another another shot at, at life. She gets her own spinoff movie that does fairly well. It's just, it's hard because the, the continuity is so disparate. There's just Everything's so just so chaotic. Stuff. Yeah. And and it doesn't have that feel, that cohesion that the MCU does, you know, you know that Nick Fury in every movie kind of thing. It's like Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn could be the same Harley Quinn in two of these things, and then they'd hire someone else, or yeah. they'd like reference it, but it wouldn't make any sense. And so James Gunn's kind of the only one that threads the needle in a way that feels succinct and he does it with the suicide squad and he does it with peacemaker so naturally you know studio heads are thinking he's the only guy that knows how to like cobble all this stuff together and give us something different and his plan he has just announced today i think today or yesterday has announced some of the projects that we have to look forward to travis what are we looking at so aside from like the ones that, you know, the the superhero movie big fans care about, which are obviously like so they've got like the Commando Force or whatever, Command Force. Uh there's like two ensemble ones. There's the new Superman movie, which would be like not a origin story, but more of like him weathered and dealing with his relationship with humanity and goodness and stuff. Uh there's like a Batman movie in there. But the one that I'm interested in is Swamp Thing. Uh They've got a Swamp Thing on the slate for, like, 2025, I think, uh, when that's coming out. Um, and it's interesting because there are, like, the tentpole ones. I think the Superman one is going to be the big one after these first couple of, like, ensemble things that they're doing. Um, they've got this, like, team, like I said, Command Force or whatever. And then after that, it's the uh, Beetle Boy for... Blue Beetle. Uh, yeah, Blue Beetle. Well, and there's already the stuff they've already made, right? So we have right. the Flash coming in June. Uh, the second Aquaman, I think the following holiday season, around December. And at that point, I think that's the jumping off point um, in a lot of ways for the next... Uh, and then, Yeah, it's The Flash, and then Blue Beetle, and then Aquaman. And at some point, there's, there's movies that haven't been made yet that start to come out. So we'll see Superman, we'll see Command Squad, we'll see uh, all these different things they've commissioned coming to fruition in, um, in like a new continuity. And they've kind of like already said what their thought, their plan is to link it all together. Um, and I am just personally intrigued. Matt Reeves is getting his second Batman, but they're going to do a Son of Batman movie. So we're going to have... Yeah. We're gonna, it's going to be like having two Spider-Men at the exact same time. People are already kind of annoyed that there's three Spider-Men in less than 15 years. But yeah. We're going to have two Batman in the exact same time period. And I think, like, I don't know, I without getting too bogged down and talking about superhero stuff, I think this is interesting just, like, as far as the big picture thing goes of, you know, creating a cinematic universe and how Marvel kind of, like, invented it and wore it out in one big thrust over the past decade. Um, I think that James Gunn at least should be aware, I think he is aware of the idea that just copying that format and trying to be successful with it this time, with the um, opposing, you know, superhero universe, is probably not a good idea. And that they're sort of now, it seems, trying to beat Marvel to the punch of sort of creating a more disparate collection of work that isn't sort of tied down to being interconnected. Because even Marvel is sort of realizing it now, like you said, with that Spider-Man stuff, and with the annoying sort of back and forth with the Sony, you know, production rights that have that have gone on around Spider-Man for the past, you know, several years. 
Um, so I think there's a good attitude there of, yeah, just sort of letting things lie as they are and taking advantage of what DC has been good at, which is sort of when a director comes and wants to co-opt a certain project and do something interesting with it, letting them do that rather than straining and, and working so hard to plug every, you know, every square peg into the round hole of a particular cinematic universe, which I think is the what has bogged down most of Mar- you know the worst stuff of Marvel for the past few years. Um, but I'm interested in this Swamp Thing uh, movie, which I think is going to be one of the more th- fun things that comes out of that. Um, I... You know, I like the Swamp Thing. My favorite pitch was they're going to do a Grand Le- Green Lantern TV show in the vein of True Detective, which I thought that, was the weirdest pitch I've ever heard. That's an adventurous way to pitch that. Uh, I think compared, like, I feel like people throw that out a lot when they mean, you know, just any kind of gritty crime drama. Bloody they're cop, like, yeah, they're like, it's like True Detective. And I'm like, well, what part of True Detective is it like? Like, is it, you know, is it just a, you know, a, a cop duo going around and dealing with drug addicts or mis- somewhat mystical forces? Or is it like... Are you going to literally hire Matthew McConaughey? Because that's kind of what that entire first season of that show relies on—is him and his, you know, weird shaman-style policing efforts. I always like to joke that thirty uh, percent, maybe fifty percent of True Detective is just sitting in cars and talking about things that are meaning, like philosophical existentialism. Yeah, but that that movie um, does it like the or that the first season of that show, and I think why like the second season or the third season aren't as, I don't know. I I guess the third season's okay too, but like the fun thing about that show is that the it's, it's driven by the actors that, that are in that first season. Well, um, let's, let's talk about something else. Cause I know people are sick and tired of our, our neck beardy comic. Yeah. True detective conversations. Already. That is the most neck beardy conversation we've had probably. So I, far. I can like <laughs> hear audible groans. Yeah. From some members of the audience. Like who cares? All right, Travis, I brought you here today because I want to talk about something we all love talking about around this time of year. Um, and it is the Academy Awards. Cue the applause. We don't have sound effects, do we? Oh, we can get them in there. We could cue the Just applause. After the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, this year is the 95th annual Academy Award nominations. Um, so for anyone who's looking to make their name, you got five more years and you can hit the centennial celebration of the Academy Awards. How big do you think that's going to be? I'm, oh, I've been thinking about uh, that recently. It depends. It kind of depends on how the next couple of years go. And yeah, we'll, we'll so. get into some of this too. Um, you, give me your thoughts just top of your head when I say like the Academy Awards, what do you think of? I have two feelings. I have obviously, so like, what we're going to talk about today particularly is something like a big gripe uh, that has to do with the institutional nature of the Academy Awards and kind of what problems we've had with it over the years, uh, both as a reflection of larger societal problems that we have and how those are reflected and what kind of people get what awards. And then also just sort of the inherent sort of gatekeeping of, of having an institution that was made by a certain group within the film industry who then sort of control the forces that will allow, you know, awards and recognition within this particular medium um, for several, several decades. Like there's that conversation of of the issues with it. And then I think there's a conversation of like, you know, when we were in LA most recently um, and went to the motion picture award museum uh, over there and down, like just outside of downtown LA, um, that museum is amazing because we don't have a whole lot of, I mean, there are many sort of, uh, full, sort of 
foils for what the course of the film industry has been other than just watching every movie ever made um, or significant movies from any particular era. But even picking, like, you know, choosing what movie is significant or not is a difficult task for anybody to do. And so for better or worse, the Academy Awards have always served as sort of a good shorthand or a touchstone to think of to compartmentalize different eras of film and how the industry has evolved over time both in attitude and then also in technology and everything else um so it's it's tough because like there is a big historical nostalgic element and i also just love you know i've i've had many many watch parties over the year for the oscars because it's just a fun thing to do when you love movies just to see you know what pops up there um so like i'm i'm of two minds in, uh, in it and uh i think particularly with what we're talking about today. I think that's a... That's a uh, good attitude to have going into it. I will say, you know, I think as far as this topic is concerned, there's just no easy answer. Um, and as much as uh, people who follow the Academy Awards, especially the Oscars, I think that there's not going to be enough of a clean answer every single time they do them, that people are going to struggle with this for a long time. I don't think there's going to be an e- a one-and-done, we did it, we figured it out, we're good. Now we can get back to enjoying things. I think it's yeah. going to take a lot more than just, you know, different movies getting nominated or membership changing. Any one thing isn't going to fix the Oscars per se. And I say fix the Oscars because that's another question is how broken do people think the Oscars are? What is, yeah. I, I want to highlight, because you say it too, is this like the, the average people's like perception, which you're right. We hear Oscars, we think, oh, it must be a really good movie if it got nominated our average perception and then there's the like academy actual members and what they view membership in the awards as which are in in this in this like event as and for them you know this is their like trade and craft it's like if a bunch of electricians got together and voted you know who was the best uh wire manufacturer you know at, at a certain point there's like some gatekeeping but is industry specific and the problem is not everybody who watches the oscars works in the industry yeah um and there's some gamification that's happened in the last couple year in the last couple decades that i think has ruined the idea the democratic ideal of these awards yeah there's definitely some politics to it that i think are i mean yeah just in the past couple of weeks have been talked about about what what does it take to get into the os like to the to the oscars or what does it take to get nominated um you know how much campaigning do you have to do um and how much of that is is you know how much of that onus is on the filmmakers themselves and should they be spending their time doing that like is that a good use of their time or you know most would argue i don't i don't think it is but it's it's weird i don't know i've i've always had like a vague conception of the oscars i'm definitely one of those like every people uh that watched it uh sort of just casually um so maybe you can tell me more about like how they they came about and like what more because i i have a vague idea of what the background is of how movies get into the oscars um but there's details of it that i think i'm in the dark on uh yeah well let me take you back to the beginning because i feel like the academy um is kind of a black hole as far as information goes and we only kind of remember them by their award show uh so originally um it was called the international academy of motion picture arts and sciences um they dropped the international uh in the 30s and stuck with the academy of motion picture arts and sciences otherwise known as the academy so louis b mayer the head of mgm wanted to create an organization to mediate labor disputes without the use of unions in 1927 he rounded up 36 close friends 
and dubbed them founding members of the International Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, in which they formally recognized five specific branches, actors, directors, writers, producers, and technicians. Um, so it's so already like... 1927. At its inception, the idea of like the anti-labor sort of sentiment of uh, of having this institution, right? It's like, oh, cool, we're kicking it off with union busting or like with a vague, just you know, skirting of uh, of organized labor, essentially. This whole thing, and Louis V. Mayer, you know, he's one of the M's in MGM, is probably you know one of the most elite in the film industry. Is looking for a way to circumvent some of the labor unions that are protecting his workers. This is the 30s, we're not quite, or this is the 20s, we're not quite into World War II, we're barely touching on the Depression. This is, everyone's at their strongest as far as negotiating, and it is bogging his productions down. So he gets a bunch of his close friends, and they create an organization to sound super fancy, because they believe that they can help get these movies back on track, and appease everybody involved without having to step through all these finicky labor unions. Now, in 1928, it branches away almost immediately and starts delving into awarding merit to film productions. So the Academy, uh, intended to be kind of like a mediator, ends up becoming a resource. Uh, They begin publishing books to assist their members. They partnered with the University of Southern California to found the nation's first film school in 1930. Otherwise known as the infamous USC program, it is the golden capstone of every high school kid's wannabe film career, and also the most expensive school on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, many notable names have gone through USC. In 1934, they, in addition to publishing books, they published a directory of people who worked on Academy Award-nominated films, as well as any local film screen in California. Um, and they store it all as research material in their library. So basically they're trying to help people network with each other, uh, help people kind of get to see who worked on what, and supply educational materials to people who already work in the industry. Uh, This is, you know, they're developing techniques for sound, for color, um, the technological advancements in the world of filmmaking. Every couple years is just something groundbreaking. So naturally they want to be able to share this information with as many people as possible which may or may not undercut the leverage that unions have if they have something under their belt that only they're masters of. So you can already kind of see there's the guise of democratic governability being used as a tool to help diminish uh, negotiation leverage. Right. It's a kind of like just placate the, you know, anybody that's calling for this. Would you say that USC is still like the most renowned film school compared to like NYU or I don't know? What, what is, would it be another contender for that? Honest to God, it is like in this order is USC is the gold standard. I think AFI technically is the okay, gold right. standard. Yeah. Um, I think I read somewhere that that school costs at least $100,000 a year. Jesus. Uh, USC is somewhere between sixty and $80,000. Uh, NYU, which is also up there. Columbia is in the top five. And then uh, UCLA has an infamous program. And, oh my gosh, Caltech or someplace? Really? For film? I didn't know that. Uh, for animation, I think. Mm. Basically, oh, there's like right. a top, there's a top five short list, and it's like AFI, USC, NYU, uh, UCLA, and then there's one more school. There's like a big joke that George Lucas went to one and Spielberg went to the other, but there, that's neither here nor there. 
yeah cal arts i guess cal arts the, yeah they're yeah um so they're kind of already like inventing some of these systems that we currently understand and take for granted um at one point because this organization is dedicated to the actual engineering of film um, they have 36 technical committees and these are the committees that are creating books that need to be published sharing directories of workers um, they're, they're all about the hard engineering difficulties of things like recording sound to film, how to archive film, how to reproduce film, how to project film, stuff like that. That's hard engineering stuff that you kind of don't associate with the glamorous events. Um, membership to the Academy is on an invite-only basis that makes it highly elite. And its membership now spans some of the biggest names across the industry. Currently, it offers 17 different branches that are recognized, including one branch that's just known as member at large for people who don't really fit into any of those other 16 categories. So basically, they create the organization in the 20s and 30s, um, and really they get into the business of awards. They're kind of like the, <laughs> the elite of the elite when it comes to films and filmmaking. Um, their awards are craft awards. They just are also in the business of making movies, um, and those studios by then also make TV shows, so naturally they broadcast their own awards. It's kind of part and parcel of the craft of what they do. Um, and pretty much up until the late 70s, maybe early 80s, the Academy Awards are really just prestigious honors. You know, they are often inflection points for culture. There's, for every five or six Best Picture winners, there's one that really stands the test of time. People are kind of using it as um, leverage moments. You know, Marlon Brando famously sent uh, an act, a indigenous person activist to accept his award and speak out against the mistreatment of indigenous people in America. There's all these little events that are famously memorialized in the museum itself. Travis, I don't know if you saw, there was just a whole room. Yeah, the acceptance speeches. At the Academy Awards, yeah. Yeah, at the Academy Award Museum, it's like right after the room where they have like, there's a little rotunda of uh, like some of the most famous awards that have been given out throughout history. Uh, my favorite one was uh, Shrek getting best animation animated feature. Uh, that award is there. Um, but yeah, then there's a, there's another large like rectangular room with a couple of dozen screens where it's just acceptance speeches, like notable acceptance speeches throughout history. Um, and yeah, you can spend some time in that room and just like tear up for so many different reasons. Uh, just walking around in a circle and seeing people like, you know, Steven Spielberg accepting the award for Schindler's List or yeah, like Little Feather doing uh, the award for uh, uh, for Marlon Brando. Um, it's, it's interesting. And I think that kind of gets to like, you know, and what you're getting at too is like there this is sort of part of that, that idea of like the simultaneous thing of the awards where it's like, it sucks because it's like, there's this institutional sort of background of it. And, you know, the top down kind of like, it's, it's this monolith that we're, it's, it's, is impenetrable and we're constantly trying to sort of pick at, but then it's, you have some, some of these, so many of these famous uh, filmmakers and actors who this moment is so significant for them. And when you see them, you know, receiving their awards and stuff, it's a, uh, it's at the same time also, you know, very heartfelt and it seems very sweet um and it's tough because yeah there's like other examples of that we have other award ceremonies and systems but this one is so big and has become so ingrained within filmmaking it's tough to avoid and people 
kind of see it as like a bellwether for for current culture like what's popular right now what's right. famous or it used to be and i think when when the disconnect starts growing between how you know what what movies are famous versus what people actually like is when people start to question whether or not the awards are even really a measure of uh actual taste or if right. there's some sort of elitism at play i want to circle back to that because i have one one more piece of history i'm going to summarize pretty quickly so we can get to the actual debate here yeah um and I, so now everybody's we're familiar with the awards and we say like oh uh it's all politics um but it it wasn't always all politics. It just became that way after a very icky person turned it into Hey, it's Travis. Uh, just jumping in here in the middle of the episode to say thank you for listening. And if you guys like what you hear, please feel free to tag us on social media at Scary Sunday Scaries. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do for the podcast. It really helps us get more followers uh, and interact with you guys. So we hope we hear from you guys soon. Thanks. Now, you're all going to hate me, um, but we have to talk about the Weinsteins. How do I summarize this quickly? But basically, Harvey Weinstein and his brother Bob create a comp- create a movie distribution company, and they figure out let's you know distribute independent films deemed commercially unfeasible by major studios. And at this time, none of the major studios had like a scouting wing for independent films. The Sundance Film Festival wasn't really in its full full bloom. Um, the brothers, the Weinstein brothers, really employed like very simple strategies they would buy international films and recut them to suit american tastes um they went on to buy and distribute a lot of famous independent films uh, i'm going to name drop a little bit you know uh kevin smith's clerks steven soderbergh's sex lives and videotape quentin tarantino famously worked for worked a lot of his movies through miramax for a while um, and they were so successful at it, uh, at making money and, and increasing their profit margins, because that's what Harvey was after, that Disney bought Miramax in 1993 to gain entry into the, into the, into the independent world. And his brother, Bob, created and ran Dimension Films. And everybody in the 90s knows Dimension Films. They are the recruiting arm to make and distribute R-rated movies that Disney could never publicly distribute. Dimension famously brought to life the Scream franchise a lot of Robert Rodriguez films, and bankrolled a lot of Quentin Tarantino's career. Um, so we have to acknowledge, too, that um, years later, stories surfaced of filmmakers struggling against the pressure Harvey and Bob Weinstein exerted to change their films in order to become more financially suitable. There is a litany of filmmakers who will tell you a horrible, horrible story of Harvey Weinstein burying a film that he thinks isn't good enough, um, you know, changing a filmmaker's cut without their consent, um, distributing a cut that they then did not understand or acknowledge, um, all kinds of things. And Harvey's New York connections afforded him inroads with every major newspaper, and he would take the offensive, um, especially when, we, when it came to rumors about sexual assault, rape, and his generally outright horrible behavior. So a lot of what he was doing became hush-hush, and his... Uh, stature in the industry helped hide a lot of what he was doing. Now, for this episode specifically, we're going to talk about his efforts in changing the way we do and changing the way we do Academy Awards. Because Harvey Weinstein discovered that getting an award win, an Academy Award win, would give small independent films a second life in theaters. If you make a very small, low-budget movie, you run it for a couple months in November, December. Um, until it's had its life, and it only makes a couple million, it comes back around in, Mar- in January, February as an Academy Award-nominated movie, 
if that movie wins an award, everybody's going to want to go see it because they didn't get the chance to see it in November and December, which guarantees a second theatrical window for some of these smaller independent films. Now, the reason Weinstein discovered it is because a lot of the larger studio films that were also nominated were smaller independent flicks, but studios have bigger fish to fry. They make their bread and butter off of bigger movies, bigger releases. Um, they win an Academy Award. They're not as impressed because they already have the financial backing to guarantee that they can keep making independent movies. Small distribution companies like Fearmax can thrive off of second theatrical windows. So when, the Weinstein, when Harvey Weinstein figured out that if he can win an Academy Award, it will help his movie make more money. Now that's, that's all I need you guys to remember. If you remember anything else... It's that technically, at that time, a best picture win equals more cash. And this is something, I mean, it's not even like, I feel like during the era of the, you know, the video market too, after things come out of, uh, after, out of the theaters, you have this aftermarket sales of DVDs and VHSs, um, which is more pre- prevalent at that time. Uh, but then there's so many there's so many opportunities for that now, even uh, when things go to streaming, where it's like, when a movie goes to streaming and you have a particular streaming service that gets a guaranteed right to, you know, have the sole streaming, uh, be the sole platform that, that the movie can be streamed on. Um, that's a huge amount of leverage uh, for, you know, any of your Oscar winners or nominated Oscar movies. Um, I know definitely, like, I was witnessing, feeling that a lot as I was watching movies on HBO to try to catch up with things that I hadn't seen in theaters and how important that must be for HBO being a pipeline to the Oscars, uh, at least in just in nominations. Um, oh yeah, and streamers are changing the way this this game works again. Um, a, a great example of this, right? In 1998, Harvey Weinstein famously proved his idea successful when his movie Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. Now, you ask anybody in the Academy, and I think Hollywood Reporter polled like a couple hundred members of the Academy 20 years later, and they all said they would have voted for Saving Private Ryan. But Harvey Weinstein press gang the cast and crew of Shakespeare in Love into doing unending media circuits, shaking mm-hmm. hands with every single journalist, every single Academy voter that they could get their hands on, and telling other people. He himself tried to convince Academy members that Saving Private Ryan was literally all in the first 15 minutes, as if to say the movie was no good after the first 15 <laughs> minutes. Jesus. So when, he, when Shakespeare in Love won over Saving Private Ryan, that was an Academy surprise because none of them understood that they had all been press ganged um, and kind of campaigned into voting for his movie, which then went on to gain a ton more money. As I can tell you, my older sister's DVD copy of Shakespeare Love says famously <laughs> over the top, best picture Academy Award winner. So Harvey Weinstein is proven right. And this kicks off a thing where if he can do it, anyone can do it. That's where we get all the for your consideration campaigns. That's where we get all of the trade magazine bombing if anyone subscribes to things like variety um hollywood reporter you know cinematographers weekly uh the dga circuit all the literary materials out there right now are littered with ads for your consideration please vote for our film you know uh women talking or elvis or top gun maverick like it, I live in LA, and I guarantee you, the only thing on our billboards right now are Academy Award nominated movies. <laughs> Just to keep it in your mind, you can never yeah. escape Elvis. It, I truly cannot, and that may be for <laughs> better or worse. 
obviously we see harvey weinstein goes the way of um, plenty of other abusers the me too movement is stricken some of the one of the most grievous um offenders uh the academy uh you know gets rid of him uh, i guess what are they like they reject his membership um but it's too late the cat's out of the bag and all of these oscar campaigns start to drive a new kind of ecosystem in which the movies that might win best picture are not necessarily the movies audiences think are the best picture winners that's so interesting is like where that divide comes from it's so slimy it is it's so slimy but it's also kind of like i guess the the less cynical way that i look at it now is these uh it's like the thing we keep talking about like the art house versus like the megaplex thing where a movie may be more popular uh, or my, more financially successful but like which which metric are are we going to choose to you know measure a movie's quality by is it its financial success or is it its you know cultural impact and then how do you measure that and can you measure it with anything but the you know awards it receives um and so it's just sort of like how how do you get movies to be on the pipeline to you know oscardom and is that sort of like catch-22 because it's like are you just rejecting something because it's not financially successful or is it like i don't know right well and we even even now we have words for it right like we see a movie and we call it oscar bait yeah like why was this movie made and you go oh it's oscar bait like there's a big kind of like thematic idea to like if it's you know a period piece that is slow paced with theater actors kind of giving us this like you know, long monologue We might call it Oscar bait. We might say, like, oh, that's just, like, classic period piece Oscar bait. Like, like Anthony Hopkins-style Shakespeare or something. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's just so much that feels so highbrow about movies that seem made for the Oscars yeah. as opposed to movies that were made to make money that also make it into the Oscars. Like, I yeah. almost feel like we feel like there's a difference between the two. There is, and there's also sort of like, but then I guess the same cynicism is applied to both, though, because that's the way I feel about like Avatar 2, for instance. Like the idea that this movie got accepted and nominated uh, as opposed to some of other other movies that came out. And it's almost like it's that thing of for for actors and, and legacy filmmakers, it's like, all right, well, you're owed one. And then for things like Avatar 2, it's like, well, you spent so much money and did so like this. This was such a feat that, you know, you need to recognition for it even if it was sort of a manic i don't know uh well i love those examples and i love opposing examples as well as like movies that literally nobody has ever heard of getting nominations um like this isn't to say that it's good or bad but andrea riseborough nominated for best actress um, for her movie right is i had never heard of that movie until that list came out and suddenly because apparently it's made on a tiny, tiny budget. That mm-hmm. movie is going to make way more money just off oh, the nominations yeah. alone. Yeah. Uh, and just and people so, just out of necessity trying to go find it to, to figure out what the fuck this is about. Um, exactly. They, they, now it's in the names of everybody who kind of pays it, who vaguely pays attention to this stuff. We're all going, yeah. what the heck is that? Who is, what, why is this performance nominated? Maybe I should go see this. And that movie is getting a second wind in theaters, but maybe in way more theaters with way more butts and seats. Yeah. And can I say, um, like, I think, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to formulate my what what about the, the even both sides of what is Oscar worthy, like at the same time. And I almost feel like there's a part of me, like I said, the cynical part of me feels like it's it's the worst of both worlds where it's like for some people, they think it's movies that, you know, 
they're they're telling themselves they like because it's it's an idea of cinema or an idea of like quality movies that movies are trying to be they're posturing for it but then like on the opposite side it's also like movies that are uh you're 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 indulging in in the reality of like what is popular like you know widely popular versus like and and clearly financially successful but like at the at the loss of of everything that falls in between and it's almost kind of like in contextualizing this for for horror i feel like it's like the opposite of what makes uh makes us enjoy the horror genre and and that's kind of what has sort of been the limiting factor for horror movies within the oscars right well and this is i kind of point it to this as like a historical thing because we see some of the first wedges between the public perception of the Academy Awards and the Academy's perception of itself. Um, as far as the actual awards go, like I've said, that we've considered them like a, a bellwether mark for culture, when in reality we're judging an outside an institution's like self-view. Uh, it's its own kind of award system. Um, not everybody in, in America is an Academy member. They just can all afford tickets to go to see these movies. But I think there's 9,000 people in the Academy, in the Academy right now. Jesus. And that's out of the millions of people that work in the industry. And I will say the odds are really good. It's split between New York and California. New York and LA. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of them. Exactly. Uh, well, and the Academy is geographically based in LA, so it makes sense that a majority of the membership just gravitates around that physical space. Yeah. And that's also just where the industry is, you know, largely too. Um, Which is interesting because geographically, again, pointing back to the larger like cultural disconnect between the coastal large cities and everywhere else in the United States feeling like it like these are two different worlds. Um, You know, you're in Dallas and and I'm in L.A. And I think a a lot of Texans would kind of like chuckle and laugh about the idea of living in Los Angeles because it just seems so foreign to the rest of what they consider Texas or like the U.S. in general. Yeah. Um, so yep. there is there's a disconnect at work here that's slowly starting to grow, and we're gonna see it expand. In 2016, we get the Oscars So White campaign. That's a big deal. We're starting. <laughs> it's important. We're suddenly yeah. starting to to judge these institutions by different criteria, and they've had decades to live by their old standards. So they're struggling to adapt. Yeah, and it's. I mean, and that's one of the positive things that we've seen as far as like the Oscars reflecting you know being more reflective of of culture at large and kind of giving time and giving opportunities to filmmakers that haven't been um that have come from communities that are not as previously represented uh within the system but it's also like that only can come after actual involvement you know of of a wider diaspora um within the industry itself um which I think is also happening at the same time. But then that's kind of like the call for the Oscars where it's like, if the industry itself is evolving and the awards aren't reflecting that, that's when the, it becomes clear that there is a problem. Um, which I love because that, uh, you know, journalists put a lot of effort into demystifying the Academy. And I, I too, mm-hmm. I think that if we're going to call for change, people have to understand how the systems work. Um, I think it's a little mis like I think it's a bit of a misconception to talk about the Oscars as if it's like everybody voted on these. I'm like, no, right. only the people that live in New York and LA mostly voted on these. Only members of trade unions voted on these. Stuff like that is like they're a different breed in a lot of ways than the average cinema goer. Most people yeah. go to the movies like twice a year at best. It's kind of mind blowing. That's crazy. It is, and we are not in. I I think about that often. Is like. Most people go to the movies two to three times a year, 
to the actual theaters at best. And I got to go at least twice a month to get the most out of my Alamo pass. I'm probably going to be twice a week this week. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I got. Um, I still have to see Puss in Boots. That's uh... yeah. <laughs> well, so we kind of see a dwindling interest in the in the Oscars. Uh, obviously, their pre Academy Awards red carpet is the biggest interest of it all. We just like seeing the glitzy dresses, the the famous people. Everyone loves seeing their favorite movie stars on the actual red carpet. But as far as the awards like intention goes, it slowly starts to dwindle. Um, so the Academy is struggling to keep a record viewership like they're used to. Now, to be clear, they actually use the money from their broadcast to fund a majority of what they do. They operate off of that broadcast. So the less people watch, the less money they make, the less money they have to do things with. So this is a do-or-die situation for them. They do have to create more interest in their in their awards screenings and they've played with their format the last couple of years and it has frustrated viewers <laughs> yeah the, so the newest like format right is uh they're trying to cut down on the total runtime is and so that's right that's why they're excluding sort of the uh, like technical achievements from the main broadcast and they've pissed off the trade unions all yeah. of my friends who are in the unions and ayasi um and all the different uh specific technical unions are furious that they their their awards are getting broadcast when no one is watching Mm -hmm. so yeah because it's just like during commercial breaks and stuff right so you don't get to like hear or see all of these uh awesome achievements by from movies that are you know up for awards that aren't you know the most popular ones Um, and that was a that was a choice by the academy to try and appeal to the lowest common denominator i mean it's clearly a move they assume that audiences are not as interested in best sound editing than they are yeah. in best picture, and so would therefore they'd be uninterested in watching that. And so there is some intentionality in trying to appeal to us. They clearly want people to watch the awards show. They want people invested. But again, the way that they nominate different movies is frustrating to viewers because it doesn't necessarily reflect our taste. Yeah. And that's kind of where we point to politics. We say, well, oh, it's all politics. Um, it's super fascinating. Uh, you know, they last year was just an absolute nightmare for the Academy. Um, it's, you know, they, they've lost a, a lot of what they consider their, their prestige. They would famously kind of look at, you know, the Golden Globes and, like, shake their heads or the Independent Spirit Awards and laugh, like, this is the the white tuxedo of film awards. This is the like the glitziest glitz, and you would expect everyone to behave accordingly. And so when mm-hmm. when the behavior of the audience drops as well, the reputation that the academy has drops with it. And, um, and for whatever reason, you know whether they're trying to save their own skins or because what happened last year was you know uh, egregious and needed to be addressed and punished accordingly. You know, they are they've got their back against the wall because audiences now are starting to ask him, do we do we even care? What yeah. is there about these awards that intrigues us? Um, and like I said at the beginning of this, there's never going to be an easy answer. We have our nominations this year. And boy, this is not this is going to be tough to parse out because some because, you know, general audiences like some of this. They also do not like some of this. There is some stuff here that people are very confused about. Um, there's some missed opportunities and some things we think deserve more recognition. There's also some great signs of improvement. You know, we've got Michelle Yeoh and Hong Chow and Stephanie Shu and 
so much more representation across all these categories but that is not to say that they have succeeded that we've done it we've solved it let's move on it is to say that they are slowly making changes but somehow also not yeah i was gonna say like it it seems like you know like i said consistent with previous years you know for for the horror genre we're we're missing out pretty largely on any kind of recognition that was a like the idea that nope wasn't nominated for anything uh even you know technical achievements or cinematography when they're inventing you know brand new techniques to to do some of the most crazy and visually stunning things uh and shooting on imax with hoyt van hoytema and doing i don't know some of the some of the wildest camera work you can think of which is crazy too because Jordan Peele won an Academy Award for screenwriting yeah, for Get for Out. a horror movie. Yeah. It's not his first time turning something in, which makes you wonder: Did yeah. Universal have a different force to back? Maybe they decided right. to, you know, maybe they thought, "Let's make our money on Nope. Let's make our awards on something else." Maybe Jordan Peele is uh, less offended by it. You know, some people make statements, mm-hmm. some don't. Um, Mia Goth, you know, our current generation scream queen went out and said you know i this is kind of atrocious that you know movies like pearl feature some of the best performances of the year didn't get a single nomination especially when you like you know even when we were talking about earlier when you talk about sort of the like the de facto nominations where it's like all right we got to give you points just you know for the effort like putting up two movies in one year with uh, a character with both stunning characters and like crazy performances like for that particular actor uh and then not getting even recognition for it is wild um and then even thinking about like you know even if we just take the top five of our our horror list from last year um nope being one not if not for technical achievement at least for like you know for writing or performances nobody from that you know either uh, uh daniel kaluuya um or yeah like like I said, from a writing standpoint, from Jordan Peele's script not getting nominated, um, or what about like you know like Bones and All, like Timothy Chalamet, um, Taylor Perkins not getting any kind of recognition for their performances, um, or Luca Guadagno for directing, or or you know sort of technical achievement in that sense either. Um, it's kind of imp- this <laughs> it's is kind like of a, impressive this... actually how many stubs snubs there are. <laughs> It, it's almost like, and this is the funny thing is, ho- like, the horror community uh, famously takes umbrance against the Academy itself. There are yeah. just, it categorically, the entire genre has been shut out from awards. Um, and I think there is a sense among the community that horror is not taken as serious filmmaking when, in a lot of ways, it is more technically difficult and emotionally, like, heart wrenching. It's just, it's a lot more work in some ways and it doesn't get the honors that it deserves. I think in the case of Nope, I personally would have loved to see it get way more nominations. It's my my second most favorite movie of the year, and I, you know, there are some movies that we could probably move on from. <laughs> yeah. And I think, that, but that's the thing too, is like one of the, uh, as people try to rationalize like why horror doesn't make it into the Oscars generally, uh, like all the various reasons, as far as, you know, like you said, it originating with the idea that a horror movie can't be a prestige, you know, film, um, or that because of like the the breadth of the genre, like the you know the the grindhouse whole thing from the seventies and eighties, um, somehow bringing down the average perception of horror movies. But then even the ex- explanation that the average Academy viewer isn't like a horror movie viewer, where they're too unsettled to watch some of the horror movies that are made, even if they are incredibly well crafted, which I think is also kind of a a bummer and a cop out, because uh, it's like there's something about you know horror movies 
putting an audience member into the depths of of particular emotions like at, at more extreme levels than you get in a drama or anything else where it's like you're watching you're you're feeling things more so much more intensely sometimes than even in like a comedy or a or a, you know a drama or or a thriller I uh you know a lot of people like to point out that out of all the best picture winners you know out of like almost 95 winners now a good 15 to 20 have withstood the test of time that applies there's 60 mm. to 70 movies out there that have won best picture that did not you know that audiences didn't think was the best picture it could have made yeah and so there there's some arbitrariness to it that people love to point to when they like to to note that the oscars are very fallible that the whole concept is a little contrived and that judging taste will never be easy or perfect um and I think, you know, the the Oscars So White was definitely a wake-up call for them because they realized that there needed to be a change in representation, and they're the hallmarks of how we view the industry as a whole. There are very few people that are watching the Directors Guild Awards or, um, you know, the like the Golden Globes was taken down because of how ridiculous and ludicrous it was. The Independent Spirit Awards only broadcast on the Independent Spirit Channel, like, there's so few public-facing events for people to see what is the best, what are some of the best movies out there that this award ceremony, for better or worse, carries the weight of the entire industry, and that's the way it was designed. Yeah, but yeah. they have to reflect like a growing change in what people want, and it's not just the film industry. I mean, people, you know, this this criticism is aimed at a lot of industries: video games, the tech world, um, healthcare. There's just so much about it that racial bias is one of the larger complaints about, and I think that's very fair. But we, like, again, like, there's baby steps happening. Um, you know, after the Oscar So White campaign, the Academy invited 900 new members. It was the largest class they've ever had, which was 46% women and I think 42% people of color. Now, that's to it, it's still so small, it feels like tokenism because you're saying 46% of 900 out of a total yeah. of 9,000 or, uh, you know, uh, in whatever percentage, it's still, like, not enough. It doesn't reflect an actual American, like, American needs. And that probably just says, <laughs> yeah, hi, Chris, he's probably really pissed. Um, it just speaks to the idea that we view it as a cultural bellwether, when in reality, right. it's, a, it's a very white and white-coated institution that has been kind of touting its own commercial and industrial success something that you were getting at earlier actually maybe interested in yeah as far as talking about what solutions are to this like is the idea that um you know the academy awards don't necessarily have a, a monopoly on the a justified assessment of like what are good movies and who are the good filmmakers it's just that they are the most commercially popular um and is you know if, if the solution is just having something other other award shows or other award systems be more competitive as far as like a, a a commercial event goes you know is that the answer to just start diminishing the impact of because i guess you know if fewer and fewer people are watching the oscars and then the viewership of something else goes up and the oscars don't have as much of a mon monopoly on um, on taste setting uh, that may be a solution and maybe it, it will also change the uh the the demand for for more inclusion well, and I have to wonder if audiences' appetite for awards in general just feels so misguided. Yeah. 
it, you know, yeah. it, it, we've kind of been reminded of our own mortality after COVID, and people just do not have an appetite for self-flagellation or, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like just self-aggrandizement. Self-aggrandizement. In the yeah. opposite direction, self-aggrandizement. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's the same argument as, like, when Christopher Nolan wanted to tell everyone to go to the movie theaters in the middle yeah. of a COVID peak, where, like, people are dying. Do you really think we care what the greatest movie made this year was? Like, there's so much more important things out there. And I, Which I is kind of nice. I think, think there's... I think people are still reeling from that in a lot of ways. They're kind of, like, reassessing what's really popular to them. Like, what's really valuable. Yeah. I think that could be a positive influence on the, on the industry at, whole, as like at large, too, is there has been, yeah, like, the demystif- like demystifying of Hollywood in general. Um, and then demystifying of, of the giant, you know, studios and studio projects, which is maybe, yeah, like I said, maybe that's a good thing. And award shows or any kind of community or filmmaking group that is more oriented towards independent filmmaking um, and propping up that side of the industry, which I think will make it more inclusive of, you know, like the horror genre as well, maybe is a good step, a step in the right direction where we, we care less and less about what the most famous actors and directors and filmmakers are doing. And that for will be a, a step in the in the positive direction well and i have to think too that like um the way that we watch movies has changed so much now yeah that the actual theater going experience has just limited what people are able to see it's like people are more conscious now than ever of streaming movies and mm-hmm. you know only the the biggest of the big are going to break into the public consciousness there's only out of all the best picture nominees one of them, which has been my personal all-time favorite of the year, has actually gained popular groundswell. And this is the kind of story that would impact the, the distribution company significantly. Talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, yeah. The, the movie that snuck up on everybody um, ever since its first release in, in March, you know, everybody saw this movie because everybody was telling each other to go see it. That is a classic movie marketing story and a24 knows how to do that they're not interested in you know canvassing every possible surface with ads they want they have a good movie they're going to get as many people to watch it and then they want people to talk about it as much as possible a win for this movie is a massive financial windfall for a company like a24 that makes its bread and butter by distributing and creating independent films the the win when moonlight won best picture was the moment A24 stepped onto the scene and was recognized as maybe one of the best, you know, distribution companies a- a- as tastemakers in a way that none of the studios could ever be. This definitely feels like a peak for them. We talked about this when we did Hereditary as far as uh, everything everywhere all at once replacing Hereditary actually as the most financially successful movie um, that they've made. Uh, but that those still don't, as far as the sheer gross goes, yeah, everything everywhere is, is at the top, and then followed by Hereditary. Um, but you, like you said, Moonlight still is the highest return on investment for them because uh, I think that was made on it was like only just over a million dollars, and it still it made like sixty five million. So it it had the biggest sort of return on um, on budget, and which I think is like it. It just like it, it gave all those people so much career longevity. Mm-hmm. There is still like some truth to the fact that if like you win an Academy Award in this industry you get like a blank check like some yeah. directors writers get a blank check what do you want to do next the world is your oyster and we always laugh because sometimes they go they run with it and we just get like the weirdest thing yeah and sometimes it's awesome sometimes you get malignant <laughs> yeah sometimes you get malignant sometimes you get you know just all kinds of craziness yeah um 
So it's very interesting. I, you know, I want to highlight some really cool things. Uh, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna let us talk about this again until maybe after the awards. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I want to highlight just a few stories. Uh, some movies that didn't get nominated for Best Picture that we all thought were The Whale. The Whale didn't get nominated for Best Picture, which yeah. seems like an extreme oversight. Surprising. It looks, it, it looks and feels like Oscar bait. Um, you know, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, or the Batman, neither of those, which are technically impressive, just on a on a technical scale, not enough uh, nominations from them. Um, you know, they're going to do the same thing again this year about screening the technical awards during commercial breaks. That's just going to be a huge gripe for technical people. Um, but there's a few cool stories that I think people might want to pay attention to. Obviously, Michelle Yeoh nominated for Best Actress. This is the first time an Asian woman has been nominated. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was a. That is, I, that's I it. That's sworn. the sentence. Yeah. And it, the first time ever an Asian woman's been nominated. That, and I hope audiences, you may want to fact check me. I hope you go to Google and double check. But this is, uh, last I checked, honest to God, like actually, this is real. They're really doing this. That's crazy. And then also, like, with the same, yeah, everything everywhere, the idea of, uh, I think, you know, Stephanie Sue and then um, Angela Bassett and Jamie Lee Curtis all getting nominated for Best Supporting Actors. Um, it seems like in history, whenever that happens, it, they usually divert to the, the movie that doesn't have two actors from the same movie being nominated. So I think Angela Bassett gets that uh, for Black Panther. Um, exactly. That's and, my prediction. You know, we have in original music, this is my favorite internet song, internet meme is RRR, the Bollywood cinematic masterpiece, the three-hour <laughs> epic saga that I love. I love it to death. Um, you know, Bollywood movies revolve around a big dance piece, and the song from RRR, Natu Natu, was nominated for Best Original Song. Now, Twitter users have their fingers crossed will get a live performance because nothing oh would gosh. invigorate the Academy Awards <laughs> more than a full-blown, epic-sized Bollywood dance number i truly it's like the only ask i have is that they do this i want the real actors from the movie doing the actual dance and doing it with the verve and tenacity in the original movie have you seen rrr no i haven't watched it oh yet i need God, to, that's another one that's on my this. list yeah you gotta watch it. Uh, it you can watch it in chunks but i recommend because it is just it's incredible it's absolutely insane um i'll get to the, the most important story here um, we're talking about Ki Hai Kwan and Brendan Fraser, these two actors who previously retired from acting um, after taking very long hiatuses. Uh, their first role back after taking a break, and they both get nominated for Oscars. They've both been making the awards circuit. Ki Hai Kwan won. Um, was it a? I think it was a. Uh, not a Golden Globe. The uh, the other one. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm blanking on it too. But I'm I'm thinking of his acceptance speech and then going and hugging Steven Spielberg afterward, because uh, it was adorable. What was that award? Oh shoot. <laughs> well, you Google, you Google search it while I uh, chat this up a little bit. But Ki Hai Kwan has said that he retired from acting um, in his teens because he thought that he would never find a role that wasn't a stereotype. He said there are no roles for Asian people that are not just blanket stereotypes. He had played enough of those throughout his career that he said enough was enough. 
He said the movie that convinced him to try and get back into acting was Crazy Rich Asians. Michelle Yeoh starring. <laughs> it's amazing. And the first role he gets is this mo- this role in Everything Ever All at Once. Knocks it out of the park. He stars alongside the woman who inspired him to get back into acting. And he is the most humble and generous and kind person. It is no wonder he's in front of every camera right now campaigning for his movie. Yeah. Because that man is a treasure. Yeah, it was a Golden Globe. Uh, it yeah, was. It was Best, best Supporting Actor uh, at the Golden Globes. Exactly. Uh, and we have a similar story in Brendan Fraser. Everybody remembers Fraser from The Mummy, George of the Jungle, all of his, like, kind of campy. Cheers. But still, yeah, Cheers. Some of his real steamy, like, teenage and, and in his 20s is, like, a kind of a early aughts hunk. Um, famously disappeared from cinema for a while. We had no idea what Brendan Fraser was up to until Darren Aronofsky tapped him to portray a 400-pound man in a movie adaptation of a play called The Whale. Now, if that doesn't sound oscar baity to you, I don't know what does, because this is, it's a, it's a Broadway play turned into a movie featuring an actor who's on a comeback. They call it the Bren, Brendanissance. Yeah, the Brendanissance. Yeah. Bren, the Brennissance. Yeah, the, the Brennissance. Brennissance? But it's similar personality, very uh, effusive, very outgoing. He is so generous. We've seen, because he's doing the press circuit as well, we've seen so many interviews. We've seen him, you know, shake hands with Ki Haikwan. Both of them starred in Sino Man together. He kind of credits him as being uh, like a, a figure, an influence on him. Both of these men are just on the awards circuit getting every amount of love that was overdue to them and us finally understanding uh, and audiences and industry members taking them seriously as god-given talents and actors um, not just stereotypes or hunks or bit players so we we have our big fingers crossed for kihai kwan and brendan fraser yeah yeah we'll see what they get um i'm interested to see like how that that category uh wash shakes out um so these will be interesting there's that's just some of the stuff we have to look forward to um you know the way that we watch movies now is so different we do a lot of streaming um services you know netflix's all quiet on the western front is one of their best picture nominees um apple tv doesn't have one in best picture this year which means they netflix is feeling less threatened um the way that streamers want uh treat the oscars is very different for most studios and so there's a little bit of uh, a change in the Oscars, especially in what's at stake for them. You know, these streaming services don't necessarily make their money off theatrical sales or DVD releases. It is all about subscriber growth. So a win for them is a win for their entire catalog. There's less at stake for them in a lot of ways if this movie doesn't does or doesn't win. Um, but Netflix has been craving that Oscar. They need that best picture, and they have been they have been giving auteur directors oodles of money to make the movie that they think might be oscar Beatty. you know scarsese did the irishman um we have a, a litany of films uh, at least the last six or seven years from netflix that is clearly their attempt at winning an oscar um apple tv was the first streamer to take home best picture with coda that was just last year um which i'm sure frustrated amazon prime netflix uh you know uh, hbo max there's just so much going on there that it is changing the way that we ourselves treat the Academy Awards. I guarantee you more people are likely to watch the Best Picture nominees that are available for streaming than they would that are, that are in theaters. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, so Netflix also gets credit for um, they're going to be uh, so for Bardo, right? Alejandro Iñárritu's new movie. Um, and Pinocchio was that produced? Yeah, and Pinocchio. Oh, awesome! Yeah, man, they've got some stuff up there. Yeah, wow. um, uh, all three of those uh, passion projects clearly. Yeah, Del Toro's Pinocchio, something he went and made and spent years producing. You know, Alejandro Iñárritu's Bardo. Um, you know, a self uh, self referential like meta analysis film it's just it's such an all netflix was missing this year was getting uh alfonso Cuarón to come and make a movie with them and they would have had the uh the three amigos putting up stuff on the board (laughs) i know i would have paid money to like drink coffee with all three of them yeah god damn it yeah so there's still like the larger disconnect right audiences are are looking at this oscar nominations list and they're asking themselves what is women talking what is you know, what is Tar? These are movies that average audiences didn't really encounter in the theaters versus these bigger things like Avatar The Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick that people are saying deserves a spot. Um, for my money, I think that this disconnect is going to continue for a long while. There's just no easy disentanglement. There's still campaigning, um, despite the fact that there's less at stake for some of these companies as far as winning goes. Um, and they are currently the only uh broadcast that is it's like the most watched award show broadcast of the film and television media awards um so the oscars you know need the the oscars drive the academy's budget entirely on a year on a year-by-year basis so they have to appeal to general audiences if they want to keep making their money off the broadcast but that implies that they have to t- make some changes on a structural level or a financial level. And I can guarantee you both of those are going to take a lot of time. Yeah, I guess we'll see like whether or not one of these other, if whether it's the Golden Globes or Directors Guild Awards, something else like eventually o- takes over this spot or this, you know, starts fulfilling this role. Um, or, or maybe if, we just start getting tired of award systems altogether. And just, or they uh, find <laughs> a new way to distribute uh, their yeah. stream. I mean, I think that there's talks, there's always talks every year of showcasing the Oscars on a live stream on a different platform, whether it's right. YouTube or Amazon Prime, um, you know, and streamers are dabbling. Maybe that's in live the end events. game of Amazon Prime is to just to to produ- produce the hell out of everything uh, from here until they get actually just usurp the Oscars and you can only stream it on Amazon Prime here in five well, or six years. Amazon Prime has inroads with the NFL, which is all the money they need and more. So I don't think they're That's particularly true. worried about the Oscars, but I do think You don't think that Amazon you think that Amazon is gonna be content with the amount of money that they're making? Is that that <laughs> I think they're gonna have their hands full dealing with the NFL broadcast yeah, because they're true. only rolling out more and more of those streams. So perhaps once yeah. they have their feet underneath them on live sports, they'll be able to tap into smaller events like, you know, the Oscars or the Grammys, which is another right. famous award show. Um, stuff like that. But for now, we're living in a world where average audiences aren't quite sure they like what a single institution is deeming the best movies of the year. It's interesting, and it still continues to be a bummer for the horror genre in general. But they're they're fun. They're good outliers throughout history, and so maybe there will continue to be. I think you're right. Like I think too, there there are there's always the hope. I think that's the beauty of the of the Oscars, and one of the things that that show clings to is there's always the hope that this year's the year for that movie that you loved or this year's the year for that actor that you treasured um or that there's like a good comeback story you know ki hai kwan we're like i will die on the hill that like, he deserves the oscar um uh, brendan fraser as well i just i cried in their movies um and so that's the thing that i think that drives people to keep coming back to it 
but every year we lose a little bit of that hope that the Oscars are going to yeah. give us what we want or that and, and it's I'm not sure if we should be asking the Oscars to give us what we want because they're they're not they're an institution they're beholden to their own standards and so a cry for change can only go so far but I do think you know it's not inordinate to ask them to address their structural flaws you know their their makeup of almost entirely white men um, stuff like that the way that the their entire budget is like you know based off of a broadcast there's some some serious issues that do need to be addressed yeah like the fundamental structure of it maybe is something that will become into question and maybe yeah like the the erosion of uh of the um the viewership due to you know whether it's streaming or, or just lack of interest like over time we'll see we'll see if that modifies it um but i'm sure to see i guess yeah once we'll, we'll circle back around once the actual oscars themselves take place uh and see what the results were of some of this uh speculating and whether or not some of these uh underdogs actually succeeded in, in getting any recognition or not yeah i um, uh i don't have cable so i really don't watch it live anymore i kind of just yeah look for the recap and some of the highlights um it's not as often for me we may Mary Kate likes to watch it a little bit. The dresses, there's still some glamour to it that we still appreciate. Um, but you know, if we don't get our mom's cable login, we're not going to watch the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, same. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, this has been our our second dead air session, uh, and we'll be starting our zombie series right after this. I guess that'll be the very next thing to come out. <laughs> I'll see about you it. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been like I said, I've been like excited, being cooped up, getting ready to talk about being stuck on the roof of a of a mini shopping mall, mall. Or a super yeah. mall, shopping mall. So we'll get to it. Uh, but hey, if you want to follow this podcast on uh, Instagram, we have a po- uh, Instagram at Scary Sunday Scaries. Uh, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Scary Sunday Scaries. You can support the podcast uh, and get early access to episodes like these or join in on community posts with us and all the other hosts. Um, there's a Discord server now. If you email Scary Sunday Scaries at gmail.com, uh, I can send you a link to that and you can start hanging out and talking with us. We talk about movies and new releases and Last of Us and a bunch of other crap. Uh, so yeah do that and then come listen to us talk about other scary movies it's really fun yeah come argue with me about elvis because i don't know why yeah. i feel like defending <laughs> this movie i don't know why you I to catch it. that heat you you've you've planted your flag and now you have to you have to i regret it so much it. <laughs> it's not like it's not a permanent flag i just i it's not permanent i just feel like sunday scaries